Welcome to the White Spring Bunker. These halls were built to safeguard some of the most prestigious members of the United States government. Now we are all that remains. Though we are always looking for men and women capable of helping us restore what has been lost. In return, we offer this, our refuge from the world above. Please, take your time and look around. We've made great efforts to restore this place to its former glory. Welcome, member, to our little enclave. Probably one of the first questions that we're going to get from many of our new members is, why the enclave? I mean, aren't they the bad guys? And certainly when you look at the Fallout universe, the Fallout lore, the games that we've played, Fallout 2, Fallout 3, mentioned in Fallout New Vegas, and of course what happened before we left the vault in Fallout 76, the Enclave certainly has not been portrayed in the best light. In many cases they are considered the enemy. Uh, they are the bad guys. And I wanted to take that and examine it through the lens of Fallout 76. You know, we are given a very unique opportunity here that when we leave the vault, we enter a region, we enter Appalachia that has been overrun with monsters. We have the Scorched and the Scorched Beasts. We have the Super Mutants. We have the Mole Miners. We have the Cryptids. We have the Ghouls. And we have to fight against all of these on a daily basis. But what we've also been given is a set of factions. We have the Free Staters. We have the Responders. We have the Brotherhood of Steel. We have the Raiders. We have the Mistresses of Mystery. And we have the Enclave all of which existed before we left the vault. And now these are notes, these are holotapes, these are buildings, these are structures that we can explore, but they're empty. And this is our opportunity to fill those factions with our own stories, with our own characters. And for me, it was important to take the faction of the Enclave and turn it into something that could be a force to be reckoned with, whether they would be considered the good guys, the bad guys, it was actually more important to be very morally gray, very much in the vein of Fallout itself. You know, you look at pre-war America, which was a technological achievement of, of the highest order, you know, sending men into space, landing on the moon multiple times, having robots and plasma weapons and everything else. And also doing incredibly horrible things to the environment, terribly horrible things to its citizens. So at the end of the day, you know, this is a very morally gray universe that we inhabit. So in looking at Fallout 76 and looking where we could take the Enclave, I wanted to take a set of Vault 76 members who leave, who have their own ideas of how they would rebuild, or in some cases their own mission, and arrive at White Spring, meet with Modus, and have a story build around that of how this could faction, how this faction could now come alive. Very much like how we find responder characters, we find raider characters that are actually players that have really embodied that. This is an opportunity to create that enclave in a way that is is its own unique story that falls really outside of the canon, outside of the timeline that we are aware of. Because at the end of the day, we don't know where. Appalachia is going to end up. So again, this is our opportunity to present something to you that I think will be very, very interesting. You know, you look at the potential of MODIS. MODIS was a tool. MODIS was used for some very horrible things. President Eckhart, when he was in charge of the bunker, started the Scorched Plague. He unleashed the Scorched Beasts. He unleashed the Super Mutants, the Liberator Drones. The things that actually helped destroy the region were started there. 
that does not have to be the end of the story. So I've taken characters like Colonel Valeria, Major Lilith, Corporal Cindy, Sergeant Mueller, Operative Bitter, and created a, an enclave that I believe could be built from the rubble that was there before and start this new story and interact with the new raiders, the new settlers, the new responders, uh, the free staters, all of these different players that come into the region, I want to be part of this story and present it in a way that, again, isn't good, isn't bad, but it's people making decisions. And they're making decisions for what they believe are the right reasons. And in some cases, those decisions are, are horrible. I want this enclave viewed as something that should be respected or feared or hated. It's really going to be up to the individual listeners of this podcast to decide how these characters should be viewed or can be viewed or are viewed for that matter. So as we go through each of these episodes, it will be a history of what this enclave has become in my mind, which is residents stepping outside of the vault into an uncertain future and finding themselves in a position to be able to rebuild something, to interact with Modus, to discover the cryptids, to fight the scorched, and do it in a way with an enclave bent, and interact with new player characters, to interact with the overseer, to interact with the raiders and the settlers, to go on the adventures of the encrypted, uh, to follow Lowell and, and when he created that robot, to find Vault 79 and what would that mean, to interact with the Blue Ridge Caravan, and as the stories in the game change, to have this faction change as well. You know, it's my belief that you can't have great heroes without, in some cases, great villains. And in my mind, the best villains are ones that don't consider themselves to be the villains. You know, if you look at Superman and Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor is always portrayed as the villain, but at the end of the day, he believes that he's right. He's fighting against Superman. He believes that Superman is the threat. Superman would not be the kind of hero that he is today without having a great villain to fight against. Batman always had the Joker. The Joker was always kind of viewed as the ultimate bad guy. But at the end of the day, when you look at how he's portrayed in many cases, he's doing what he believe is, believes is right. You know, in the Dark Knight series by Christopher Nolan... You know, he was really pointing out the hypocrisy of society and trying to show Batman that he was trying to protect something that didn't deserve to be protected. Um, so, in again, looking at what we could do with the Enclave here, it was something that I wanted to put together that it could be that morally gray organization that you would see doing wonderful things, helping to rebuild parts of Appalachia, um, but in other cases making decisions that were, again, maybe very bad, that people would be killed, people would be kidnapped, people would be interrogated. So looking at that and presenting it to you and have you, in some cases, interact with these characters um, in your own mind is a way, I believe, to create a great story. Um, so again, thank you very much for listening to this inaugural podcast. And we are going to present something to you as well. Uh, the initial reading, really the first journal entry of Colonel Valeria, uh, her experiences in the vault, where she came from, and and ultimately uh, the journey that she set upon that brought her to the Enclave and what helped define her as a character. Uh, so again, uh, appreciate all the feedback here. Hope you do enjoy this podcast series. Uh, we do enjoy doing it for you. Uh, we will continue to do so for as long as we have material, and hopefully that will be a very long time. So with that, I'm going to transition over. And we're going to listen to the first journal entry from Colonel Valeria.
A reading from the personal journal of Colonel Valeria Faustina, commander of the Appalachian Enclave. Vault 76, Reclamation Day, 2102. There are the little lies that we tell ourselves, and the bigger lies that we tell to the children. Then there are the lies told by vault -Tec, perhaps the biggest lie of all, everything will be okay. For the past 25 years, that's what the overseer told us. She said that Reclamation Day would be a new start for us and a new start for America. And for 25 years, we all believed her. Well, most of the other Vault 76 residents, that is. My parents, Albert and Beatrice, were under no such illusions. You see, while they might have been selected for the vault, they were no ordinary citizens. They were government operatives, working on some of the most classified projects in Appalachia. Their orders were to monitor the vault from the inside and prepare for their own assignment after Reclamation Day. And for 25 years, that's exactly what they did. Not even the overseer was aware of what they were doing. When I was born, four years after the Great War, it was a joyous occasion in the vault. Every new birth was celebrated as a signal for a brighter future, that everything will be okay. My parents, who I always called sir or ma'am, took it upon themselves to make sure I did not become a starry-eyed typical vault dweller, believing whatever vault tech had told us, what the overseer kept telling us. From the beginning, I was exposed to the harsh, unvarnished truth of the world. I was taught that sometimes people had to do bad things if good was going to flourish. They loved their country and had done and would do whatever was necessary to protect it from those who would do it harm, both foreign and domestic. They also believed that one must always be able to face the truth of one's actions, that if you have to lie to yourself, then you cannot be truly committed to the cause. My early childhood was filled with typical vault education, followed by my real education given by my parents. There were only a few other children I was allowed to spend time with, and over those first few years, fewer that would socialize with me. Not that I minded. I was never really concerned about the childish games they played. One of the families we did sometimes socialize with was Lucius and Megan Alistair. My parents knew Megan from their time in the military, and Lucius had been a researcher at West Tech. They also had a daughter, Lilith, who was probably my best and only friend. She was a year younger than me, and, well, she had many secrets of her own. In the vault -Tec classes, I excelled in history, mathematics, and physics. Lilith was so much more interested in biology and chemistry. I remember the day we were going to perform vivisection on frogs and mice. Some of the kids hated it, and one even refused to do it at all. Not Lilith. She went at it with an enthusiasm that I don't think any of us had ever seen. After class, a number of the remaining animals went missing. Over the years, some of the other vault pets and animals would go missing from time to time. As much as the teachers and even security tried to figure out where they went, no one ever figured out what happened to them. Well, no one but me. One day, I spotted Lilith heading down to the old maintenance section. She loved to show off her chemistry skills, and I thought she might be looking for some new ingredients for her various concoctions. I remember the day she cooked up a small explosive in the janitor's closet. We all got a big laugh when the maintenance staff got covered in soapy water when their buckets exploded the moment they added a Braxo. I made my parents proud that day with how I was able to sneak up behind her. She never even noticed me as she made her way to the small intake grill behind the water reclamation tanks. She carefully removed the cover and disappeared inside. Well, I just had to know where she, what she was doing. It was like my first secret mission, just like my parents would tell me about. I gave her a few minutes to get wherever she was going, and then I followed behind. It was good that we were so young, because the space was definitely a tight fit. The intake pipe was fairly straight, so I just kept moving forward until I could see a small light ahead, to where the pipe opened up into a larger space. I sneaked up to the edge and peeked around the corner and discovered exactly what Lilith was doing, and also what happened to all those animals. Lilith had turned this little space into her own abattoir. Hanging in one corner were skinned dogs and cats. The bones of mice, frogs, and other unidentified animals had been snacked in a corner, and the middle of it all was Lilith. I couldn't see exactly what she was doing because she was facing away from me, but the blood-spattered ground in front of her along with the sound of crunching bone made it obvious.
I observed her for a few minutes more. She seemed to relish the raw meat she was eating and giggled like she was telling herself her own joke. I left as quietly as I had arrived, confident that she never saw me. I guess I should have been unnerved or disgusted, but instead I was fascinated. Lilith had hidden the secret side of herself, and everyone else just thought she was odd, but I knew better, and I expected there was so much more to learn, as I would discover years later. When I turned 16, it was usually an occasion celebrated by the vault. My parents, on the other hand, had started to separate ourselves from the other vault dwellers. They spent more and more time with me, teaching me the lessons of the real world, that the niceties of society were only made possible by those who had the will and commitment to make the hard decisions, the terrible decisions, to do what was necessary. As the years went by, families expanded and the vault grew more crowded. Soon the vault door would open, what was called Reclamation Day. We saw the overseer every day, mingling with the children and relating tales of her life in pre-war Appalachia. At night, I would overhear my parents talking about her, about how she wasn't even supposed to be our overseer, that she had been originally assigned to Vault 101 outside Washington, D.C. They even said that the overseer had found out what was going on, on, on in the other vaults, and that she should have been dealt with, not promoted. The year before Reclamation Day, we had our first serious accident in the vault. We all knew something was wrong, and we felt the whole vault shake, and we heard a hollow boom sound from somewhere below us. My father went to go out to see what was going on, while my mother kept us back in our quarters. Before my mother closed the door, I could have sworn I saw Lilith standing alone in the hallway vestibule watching the commotion, and she had the strangest smile on her face. I found out later that there had been an explosion in the water reclamation center. Four people died, including two maintenance crew and both of Lilith's parents. No one could figure out what they were doing there, as neither they nor the maintenance staff had any responsibilities in the area. The overseer had the whole area sealed off, and people tried to forget about the incident. Lilith kept to herself mostly after that. I'd see her from time to time, that same strange little smile on her face when she thought no one was looking. And one day after class, I came back to my room and found a handwritten note on my bed. Thanks for keeping my little secret. Signed, Lilith. I carefully folded the note and slid it into my journal. So she had seen me, and trusted me. It was something I needed to consider for the future. As Reclamation Day approached, my parents had me training in the vault gym long into the night. My father was an unforgiving sparring partner, and he taught me all the hand-to-hand combat skills he knew, and once he felt I was ready, he turned me over to my mother. She was even harder on me. Though as a former close combat instructor, I expected nothing less. It was normal to go to bed bruised and sore, muscles aching and feeling like they were on fire, but it was necessary for what was to come. And when we woke up one day, and it was the day the entire vault had been waiting for, 25 years. The Reclamation Day party was something to behold. I had never seen the staff and everyone else so excited. My parents made me come with them to the party because they said it would look strange and suspicious if we weren't there. There was plenty of singing, dancing, and people drinking. A lot. Even the teenagers, my age and even younger, were getting tipsy on all sorts of concoctions that the staff put together, trying to use up the remaining stocks of alcohol. I admit... I snuck a few sips of what Miss Marsher called an atomic sunset. Well, maybe more than a few sips. And I was actually having fun, well, sort of, until my evening ended when Bobby Stoller, a boy from down the hall, tried to kiss me. Well, I was going to have none of that, and I broke his nose with a right cross. The entire party suddenly got deathly silent, and I realized what I had done. Just out of pure instinct. When I looked up and saw my parents, I couldn't tell if they were angry or proud of me. My mother gathered me up and walked me back to my room while my father was busy explaining to Bobby's parents what had happened and how sorry he was for the accident. She didn't say anything to me until we got far enough into the hallway, away from the crowds. Valeria, you need to control your emotions. That kind of response can get you in a situation you might not be prepared for. But, 
and her frown turned to a mischievous grin. That was a beautiful punch, and that low-life brute deserved it. She put her arm around me, and we walked back to our quarters together for the first time like a mother and daughter, not as a teacher and student. Later, my father returned to our quarters. He looked at us with a small smile on his face. Tomorrow is the big day. I don't mind that we all had a little fun this evening, and he winked at me. But out there, he pointed towards the direction of the vault entrance, out there is the real world. And it won't be the world that your mother and I remember. You need to be prepared to anticipate and react as we've taught you. When we leave this vault, you won't just be our daughter, you'll be an operative, and we have work to do. He took my hand and pulled me up from my chair, and then he did the most unexpected thing. He hugged me. When he let go, he looked just a little older and maybe even a little sad. We've done all we can to prepare you, and I wanted to tell you just how proud both your mother and I are of you. Now head off to bed. We have a big day tomorrow. I walked back to my room, finally feeling the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders. All that we had talked about, prepared for, it was really happening. Lying down on my bed, I slowed my breathing and focused on my mental exercises. Within minutes, I had fallen into a deep sleep. I was awoken by my mother dropping a backpack on the floor next to my bed. A recording from the overseer was playing over the vault intercom, talking about Reclamation Day. Time to get up and get dressed, Valeria. She handed me my vault suit and left the room. I took one last hot shower before getting ready. Father had said that we might not find hot water again until we reached White Spring. Out in the real world, we'd have to scrounge for what we needed or even take it, if necessary. Walking into the kitchen, my parents both smiled and said that we'd be leaving, now that most of the other residents had already left. I followed them through the now-empty vault, and all I could think of was how much I wanted to leave this place. It had never felt like home. It felt like a prison. Out there in Appalachia was where we belonged. We took the supplies offered by the bots on our way out, and when the vault door opened for us, I got to see the sun for the first time. I remember thinking it was a lot brighter than I expected, and the smells of outside, well, just smelled so real. As I was taking in my first sight of Appalachia, my mother went down and talked to this Mr. Handybot floating near a bunch of balloons. She came back up and told us that the overseer had left a message, that she'd gone ahead and that we should follow. My father laughed and said that he'd let those other fools, which I took to mean the other residents, chase their tails, but that we had a job to do. This is what they'd been training me for since as long as I could remember. Now here we were in Appalachia with our own mission. Come hell or high water, we needed to get to the White Spring. We needed to get to what my parents called the Enclave. The three of us started down the hill walking into the unknown. We'd been traveling for days, mostly at night, to avoid the attention of the local wildlife and our fellow vault dwellers. Leaving the vault, my father said he couldn't believe how quiet it was. He said before the war, you could hear the huge exca excavators and other mining equipment all the way from he here to the ash heap. My mother found a corpse of a civilian just down from the vault entrance with a note saying that he had been part of some group called the Responders. Sounds communist to me, said my father, as he did a quick search of the body, grabbing a small amount of supplies and a machete. From our vantage point, we could see Appalachia spread out before us from the smoky south east to the mountains with some kind of big structure there and west towards what I believed was the Ohio River. For the, the first few days were slow going. Nothing was as my parents expected. There were no people, no traffic, no activity at all. Then there was the wildlife. We found mutated dogs, wolves, and the most horrifying discovery, what must have been at one time, people. There were two kinds. The first was what my father started calling ghouls. They were feral creatures, horribly burned or somehow transformed by exposure to radiation. We couldn't communicate with them, and they attacked us on sight. Luckily, my father had found a small smash of weapons in a, in a shack, and I was able to put my weapon skills to good use. A few 10 millimeter rounds put them down just fine. The second group was far more dangerous. My father stumbled upon them at a local farm just south of the vault. 
From a distance, it appeared that the farm was occupied by people. They didn't move like ghouls and we found that we found earlier, and the wind even carried what we believed at the time was conversations. Leaving my mother and I to cover him from a small knoll just east of the farm, we, he made his way cautiously to the farmhouse. The figures we saw earlier were probably inside, and I watched him slip in through, through a side entrance. Immediately, we heard the sound of a gunshot, and it quickly escalated into a full-scale firefight. Both my mother and I sprinted to the farm, moving from cover to cover as my father backed out of the house, firing as he went. I took up a flanking position to cover the rear half of the house, where I was taken under fire from a storage structure at the rear of the property. The firing was erratic, and I, but I could hear the snap of bullets over my head, and they were too close for comfort. Leaning over, I adjusted my aim at the figure standing in the door of the storage unit. In the half-light, whoever it was just didn't look right. There seemed to be some kind of glow, and I could see hear some kind of hissing sound. I fired off a few rounds, missed but corrected my aim, and saw the figure collapse in the doorway. I turned my attention back to the farmhouse where my parents had gone back inside. I continued to scan the area for other threats and saw movement in the barn to the left of the house. It looked like there were at least three more people in there, and I had to assume they were hostile as the others we'd found. Ducking behind the fence, I worked my way around to the side of the barn to get behind them. I could hear them moving inside, and after peeking around a corner, I spun in and shot the first two in the back, watching them drop to the floor. Lining up the third, all I heard was the click of a jam. The person turned around and moved into the light. Even as he raised his shotgun, all I could see was his hideous face. It looked like he was burned with red eyes and some kind of green crystals growing out of his skin. My father had warned me about tunnel vision, but I was frozen to the spot. The boom was loud in the barn, and I flinched, only to see the thing topple over in front of me with a smoking hole in the back of its head, and my parents standing in the doorway of the barn, now both holding pump-action shotguns. Val, are you okay? My mother crossed the barn, sidestepping the corpses and checking me for wounds, before hugging me. Staring at the body and now seeing its two compatriots were in the same condition, I could barely speak. Who? I mean, what are those things? My father was examining the bodies, tugging on the green protrusion, rummaging through their pockets for identification or anything else of value. He looked up at me. I don't know, Val. The people in the house are exactly the same, and yes, they are people. It looks like that these folks lived here. I found identification papers in the house and on the bodies. He handed me a West Virginia driver's license with the name Francis Abernathy on it. The picture of the middle-aged man in no way looked like the desiccated body on the floor. When I went into the house, these people were immediately hostile. Your mother and I were forced to kill them. They appeared to be able to use weapons, as you saw here, but they don't communicate at all. All we heard was broken English and hissing. This may be some kind of disease or something from the bombs. We just don't know, he explained. But this ramps up the threat significantly for all of us. We need to get to the White Spring Bunker and see what they know about this. We also need to restock and recheck all of our weapons. We can't have any more jams, because next time your mother and I may not be here to save you. I may have blushed at that last comment. I should have known better and checked my weapon first. Sorry, sir, it won't happen again. He rose to his feet and put his hands on my shoulders, looking me in the eye. Val, we trained you well, and so far, you've given us no reason to doubt your abilities. But this isn't the vault. Remember what we taught you, follow our lead, and you'll be just fine. Thank you, sir. We spent the next few hours going through the rest of the property. We found several things that looked like statues, outlines of people, but seemingly made of stone, covered in the same growth as the others. But when we touched them, they all crumbled into a mix of dust and debris, giving off radiation. Our pit boys were able to warn us of the worst of it, and we started giving them a wide berth. Having found additional weapons and a workbench to perform basic repairs, we gathered in the farmhouse at dust to plan out our next moves. The robot outside of Vault 76 had said the overseer had gone ahead, and that we, as former residents, should follow her. 
although our mission was to get the White Spring as quickly as possible. The fact that we were now faced with this new threat meant getting more information was a priority, especially if it was something the Enclave needed to be aware of, or perhaps bring them more data on whatever this was. Father was going to scout ahead while Mother and I got some rest in the farmhouse. We took turns on watch, and it was eerily quiet in the area, hardly the sound of animals and nothing in the sky either except for the stellar constellations and the moon. A little after midnight, I thought I heard something. It sounded like the flapping of wings, but it faded away, and I thought I might have been imagining things. Father returned a few hours later, before dawn. He said that the overseer's camp was there, but abandoned. It had supplies we could use and a note pointing to a town in the area called Flatwoods. He hadn't wanted to press on too far, but, this town, but if this town was populated, it would be an opportunity to get more information, and maybe even transportation to White Spring. Mother quizzed him on the other details, and I could tell the two of them had followed back into their familiar routines when they worked together before the war. We started traveling in daylight now because Mother said it would be easier to spot potential trouble. To replace my pistol, they gave me a hunting rifle, while they both carried shotguns, for which we found plenty of ammunition back on the farm. We were also able to craft some basic leather armor, which offered at least some measure of protection beyond our simple vault suits. We ran into some mongrel dogs and what could only be described as some kind of cross between moles and rats. Mother took a pretty nasty bite from one of them as it burrowed right up from the ground beneath her, but luckily we had plenty of medical supplies to take care of it. But when we did get to Flatwoods, it wasn't what we expected at all. We found the place that was abandoned. All that was left were the remains of extensive camps and shops that these responders had set up. There was also a vendor bot who sold things priced in caps. I guess Nuka-Cola bottle caps were being used as some form of currency. Father said we should start collecting these caps as it could prove useful in our journey. There were also holotapes and terminals which talked about responders and our people who were here after the bombs. Mother and father spent most of the day going through all the information they could find and taking lots of notes. They sent me to go through the rest of the town, investigate, and report back to them. There were plenty of corpses, including more of those frozen statue people. The town looked like it had been abandoned in a hurry, given how much was left behind. I did get in some good target practice, however. There were more of those ghouls out by an old red rocket. The hunting rifle did good work on them, but they were highly aggressive and charged at me as soon as they heard the first shot. Afterwards, I collected as much useful scrap and food as I could find and returned back to the church before nightfall. I found my parents finishing up the responder terminal, and I briefed them on my recon of the rest of the town. They would take turns asking me questions about what I had seen and done, and examine the materials I brought back. When I asked what they had found, they said that Flatwoods had been the responders' base of operations for a long time, but had moved north to the Morgantown airport. Are we going to the airport, I asked. From my geography lessons in the vault, I knew it was pretty far in the opposite direction of where we had planned to travel. My father looked up from his notes and frowned. Now it looks like something catastrophic has affected the region. Rather than go chasing our tails, your mother and I agreed that it would be better for us to get to the White Spring as quickly as possible. We've been able to gather enough supplies, weapons, and ammunition to get us there. Your father is correct, continued my mother. We're not going to be much good to the Enclave if we're just running around the West Virginia hills without a plan. But we'll spend the night here, collect anything else we might need, and head east in the morning. Lucky for us, these responders had left bedrolls and even places for a campfire. After cooking up some charred meat and sitting, in, sitting down for dinner, father walked me through our rolls for the trip tomorrow, how he'd scout ahead of us with mother bringing up the rear, and that I was, be, I was to be in the middle prepared to help either of them out should we make contact with any hostiles. Because of the mountains directly to the east, we traveled southeast towards a town called Somerville before attempting to cross, the white, cross into White Spring. We didn't know exactly how long it would take, given that we'd be walking the entire way. Later, as my mother and I were turning in, father came over to me. Val, just in case, you need to know how to get into the bunker. Now, before you say anything, yes, we're all going to get there together, but if anything should happen, 
They won't let you in the bunker without proper credentials. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a thick laminated card. This is a congressional ID. All the pre-war politicians assigned to the bunker were given one. As part of our mission, your mother and I were given one which will allow us to access the bunker now as well. If anything happens, you take this card and you present it to the Enclave. The staff and the resident AI will recognize it and allow you to enter. After we finally figured out how to get the vendor bot to shut up, it was a quiet evening, with the sound of the creek behind us and the wind rustling through the trees outside. The three of us took turns standing watch over the empty town. As I lay down, I thought how strange it was that just a week ago we were all stuffed into an overcrowded vault, and yet now it felt like we might be the last people in the whole wide world. Those were my thoughts that finally saw me off to sleep. Wake up, Val. It's time to go. My mother was leaning over me, already dressed in her vault suit and armor. Shaking the sleep from my eyes and leaning up, I could see my father already packing up the last of his equipment and shouldering his backpack. He turned to us. Team, I'm going to scout on ahead and we'll be back in an hour. Be ready to go as soon as I return, before leaving the church and heading down the road, cradling his pump shotgun. My mother handed me a pile of clothes. Larry, I found some additional armor and some things for you. You can get cleaned up and changed in the back. I'll finish here and open up some rations for us. It'll be a long day, so remember to pace yourself and be prepared. You do exactly what we trained you to do. She gave me a quick hug and left to, to give me some privacy. While the facilities here were primitive, especially compared to the running water and hot showers in the vault, I was able to at least clean off some of the accumulated grime and feel partially human again. The clothes and boots my mother found were almost the right size and fit neatly over a new set of leather armor she found upstairs. I had to laugh, though, because the previous owner might have felt differently about its effectiveness, as I was able to put my fingers through three obvious bullet holes in the torso. But still, it was better than nothing. Coming back out front, my mother handed me my backpack and the hunting rifle. Right on time, we saw my father jogging back up the street towards the church. Okay, team, I scouted a few miles down the road, had to kill a couple of those burnt-looking things, and found a note referencing something called Scorched. I think that might be, might be what the people around here name those things. So unless somebody tells us otherwise, that's what we'll call them, too. Let's move out together, and when we get south of town, I'll continue ahead. Val, you follow behind, and when your mother will cover our rear. Any questions? I looked at my mother and back to my father, and I could tell that they were definitely back in their element and confident. And maybe I was a little surprised, too, that I was confident. The nervousness from before was gone. I chambered around in my hunting rifle, and we started down the road. For the first few days, we settled back into routine. My father would lead and my mother would cover, and I would keep pace between them. Only a few times did we stop and change course to either avoid more creatures we didn't recognize, and I swear one of them looked like some kind of bear, but it was enormous, or obstructions that blocked our way. In this area of Appalachia, there seemed to be plenty of supplies to gather and food to be had, which made the absence of people all the more surprising and worrying. A few times at night, I could hear my parents talking about what they found. Though I couldn't hear everything they said, it sounded like they were confused. They had tried to pick up Enclave radio broadcasts from their Pip-Boys, but all they got was static. Appalachia appeared to be completely empty. Empty except for the monsters. Everything changed on the eighth day. The weather, which until then had been sunny and warm, suddenly turned into a torrential downpour. We were caught out in the open, and my father ran back to get the two of us. We all hurried over to a ruined house down at the end of a dirt road. Between the rain, lightning, and thunder that seemed to roil the entire region, we did what we could to keep our supplies and ourselves dry. The rain kept up for hours, which meant that the river we were supposed to cross would probably be flooded. Getting stuck here was certainly not part of the plan, but even then, my parents didn't seem con concerned. It was still midday, and they spoke about moving further south once the rain let up, to check the local bridges or find a more secure place to hold up for a few days. In hindsight, we should have been more careful. Not that we had gotten complacent, but we still didn't understand the true dangers of Appalachia.
The rain had begun to taper off, and my father was anxious to get moving again. He got as far as putting his hand on the door frame when he heard a screech from outside, followed by a hiss and a burst of gunfire. It was only my father's quick reflexes that saved his life as bullet chewed through the door frame. He rolled back into the house, and both my mother and I fired blindly out the front door and windows to cover him. I don't know where they all came from, but there must have been a dozen of those scorched things in front of the house. The rain masked their approach, and now they were right on top of us. We all heard the breaking glass and wood as they forced their way in through the back door. Twenty-five years of rot were nothing against these creatures. My mother turned to deal with the ones in the back while my father and I started shooting out the windows at the ones in front. It seemed like they just kept multiplying. For every one we shot, two more took their place. One leapt through the bay window, shattering the remaining glass. It tackled my father to the ground, spilling the contents of his backpack all over the floor, and knocked his shotgun across the room. Wielding my rifle like a club, I knocked the scorch off my father and then put a bullet between its eyes. I grabbed my father's arm to lift him up and handed him back his shotgun. He just nodded and started firing again at the horde outside. We were running through our ammunition at a frightening pace. My mother returned from the back, having killed the half-dozen or so that had tried to break in that way. She was bleeding from a bullet graze on her arm, but otherwise was unhurt. We fired another volley out front, knocking down several of the creatures, but they were massing again for another attack. In that brief moment of calm, my father explained that we were going to have to make a run for it, that there were just too many of them. We grabbed as much as we could carry, alternating shots at the creatures to keep them at bay. My father grabbed my arm. Val, I want you to go first. You head out the back door and run north. We'll cover and then join you right after. We'll meet a half mile up the road at the intersection with that wreck Cordova. You know the one? Yes, sir, I know the one, but we should stick. And that was as far as I got when suddenly a shadow fell over the house and the air was filled with the sound of flapping wings. Enormous wings. We all turned towards the window when the entire house exploded around us. The last thing I remembered was flying through the air and the inhuman shrieks. Pain. That's the first thing I felt again. My entire body seemed to come alive at once with pain. I tried to lift my head and immediately bumped into something hard. The pain blossomed again, pounding through my skull. I fought the panic that started to set in to try to calm myself. After a few minutes, I was able to get my bearings, and my head throbbed just a little less. Everything was dark when I opened my eyes, and when I felt around with my hands, it seemed like a big part of the house, maybe a wall, had fallen on top of me, almost trapping me underneath. I didn't want to cry out or make too much noise. Those scorched could still be around. Instead, I just listened. For what seemed like ages, I couldn't hear much of anything, other than the wind and the dripping of water somewhere close. Satisfied that I wasn't in any immediate danger, I tried moving again, slowly pulling myself out from underneath the rubble. I couldn't raise my pit boy to see what time it was. I could have been out for minutes or even hours. Moving a wrecked bookcase out of the way, I was finally able to pull myself out. My clothes were in tatters, and barely any of my armor was left, seemingly torn to pieces in whatever explosion we were caught in. The house around me was almost completely fat. The walls blown down, and the second story collapsed on the first. The sun was beginning to peek over the nearby hills. In the faint light of dawn, I dropped to my knees and started looking for my parents. I whispered, Sir, ma'am. Then, Mom? Dad? As I crawled through the debris. At first, I thought they were gone, that perhaps they'd escaped and that they'd be coming back for me because I couldn't find any trace of them. Then I found my mother's backpack. It had been ripped open and worse, covered in blood. Inside, there was an old med kit, which I used to bandage up the cuts on my arms. I kept looking, turning over furniture and checking under walls to see if I could find them. A few minutes later, I did. It looked like they had died together. My mother had been impaled on a broken frame post, probably from the explosion while my father was next to her, holding her hand while his shotgun was in the other. The scorch must have found him wounded and killed him. I knelt down in front of him. My family, they were gone. They were parts of me, 
there were parts of me that wanted to cry, to, to scream, but that's not how they trained me, and that's not what they would have wanted. Instead, I swallowed those feelings, the grief, the hate, and swore an oath to myself and to their memories that I would do what had to be done. I took their wedding rings and put them in my pocket. Remembering what my father told me, I looked through his pockets for the congressional ID card, and it was gone. The pocket had been torn open. I cursed silently to myself and looked around the rubble for it. I spent precious minutes and even took the chance to turn on my Pip-Boy light, but I never found it. Damn, I thought. How was I going to get into the bunker without it? Taking a deep breath, I closed my eyes and thought about the problem. My father mentioned that many of the local bigwig politicians had been given these cards. There was always a chance I could track another one down. That was going to be just one of my many challenges I would need to overcome. First, I said my goodbyes to my parents, closing their eyes and resting my hands on their heads. We didn't pray, didn't believe in that sort of thing, but I did make a vow that I would finish what they started. Collecting what little supplies that remained, I thought back to the overseer. She'd left a trail to follow, or what my father said about the Morgantown Airport. It wasn't much, but it was all I had to go on. In the ruins, I found an old cap and tattered overcoat. Putting them on and throwing the backpack over my shoulder, I started back up the dirt road. When I got to the end of the lane, I looked south one last time, before turning back to the north. As the sun started to rise over the hills, I set my mind to the task at hand. I would find a way to the bunker, to the enclave, and I would let nothing stand in my way. Members, we look forward to your next visit to our little enclave.